Hey guys, welcome back to the Far Better Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Clark, and this is Season 5, Episode 16. We are discussing the theme of road signs, and we are ready to begin our study on our second stop in the wrong way sign. We're studying Deuteronomy 28 and looking at all of the things that we can find from verses 15 through 68 that would give us an informational piece on what happens when we go the wrong way. Today's episode is about problems. You know, disobedience and discipline go hand in hand. Our world doesn't want you to believe that. Our world wants you to think that you can't really discipline anybody anymore. I find it amazing, though, that when we think about cancel culture, that's really all that is, is disciplining people for what we deem to be bad behavior. And yet, when we talk about a parent disciplining their child, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. There's an individual on social media who makes his calling with 11.9 million followers by giving the wrong way to parent. And oftentimes, the wrong way to parent in his mind is setting boundaries and telling your children that you are the owner of the house and therefore you have the right to make the rules that you make. And he goes in this long, drawn-out you know, segue every time, set up and segue, I should say, where by the end of the episode, you're sitting there thinking, what happened? <laughs> How did we get here? But discipline and disobedience go hand in hand. I'm not talking about abuse. We never indicate in anything through Scripture that abusing a child is acceptable. Yet when God makes certain passages in the book of Proverbs about the rod of correction will draw, draw, drive the foolishness of a child far away from him, that tells me that there's a way to punish a child without abusing a child. And when I start to look at Deuteronomy 15, 28, 15 through 68, I see a God who is going to punish his children with the problems that they would have. Now, we'll talk more about the punishments in and of themselves in next week's episode, but, you know, problems can also be a form of punishment that you would experience. When we think about temptation, James 1, 12 through 16 tells me that temptation breeds sin. James writes, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, For when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. If committing sin had no enjoyment, then a man doesn't have to worry about temptation. And yet Jesus himself was tempted. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13. And that gives mankind an interesting view into the holiness of Jesus. Temptations and enticement. Jesus was to be tested, enticed by all three of Satan's advances, and yet each time providing the proper answer. Matthew 4.4, Matthew 4.7, Matthew 4.10. In Luke's account, Luke 4.4, 4, 
Luke 4, 8, and Luke 4, 12. You know, the devil will never leave someone alone simply because God is their father. In another instance in the New Testament, Jesus showed how quickly some can get confused about where they are spiritually. John 8, 37 through 44. From this, we can see that the Israelites would be at the forefront of Satan's agenda. Knowing that this would be the case, the Lord gave intense and immense caution to his people about all that would befall them if they willingly rejected a proper path. I want you to think a moment about Jesus himself being tempted before we continue on. Some have suggested that Jesus could never sin. And while I agree with the statement that in order to be our Savior, he could never sin, because if he sinned, he could not be our Savior, let's be careful that we're not going to the point of saying that Jesus was never tempted. Hebrews 4.15 tells me that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our difficulties of life because he was tempted in all points as man was tempted and is tempted, yet without sin. God, when he came into the Jesus, when he came to the earth in the flesh, was 100% man, 100% deity. But that 100% man faced temptation. And what Hebrews tells us through the Hebrews writer's pen, I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but the Hebrews pen tells us that Jesus faced more than just three temptations. We can categorize them in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And certainly in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, that is what Jesus experienced when the devil came after him. But I know that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life manifest themselves in more than just three ways. There are numerous things that could be something uh, causing a man to lust or a woman to lust. The lust of the flesh, we would think of more of a sexual nature. Sins that have to do with God's plan not being followed for marital, marital bliss. The lust of the eyes is a little bit of a different thing that could convey an idea of sexual desire. If my eyes look upon something that is pleasing to me from a physical standpoint, but again, that goes more into the lust of the flesh. And so the lust of the eyes, we might say, would be more like covetousness. You look at somebody's car, their house, their possessions, and you want them. That's what we find. In the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. With the pride of life, it's an entirely different story. It's an idea of domination, power. You are somebody. Jesus faced all three of those temptations in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and he faced them throughout his life, meaning he could have sinned but he followed the plan and did not sin. Last point on this before we continue on. Think about what it would mean if Jesus could not have even been tempted to sin. Why would the devil even come after him? Why would the devil waste his time if he knows 
Uh, there's no way this is going to work out, but let me give it a shot and just see what happens. No. It's not how this works. Jesus could absolutely stumble. But thanks be to God, he didn't. Because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities, our problems. As we shift back to Deuteronomy 28, God listed the problems that they were going to face if they were disobedient. I said in a previous episode, Deuteronomy 28, if I didn't say this, I should have said it, so let me cover my bases both ways. Deuteronomy 28 sets up the rest of the Old Testament. If the first 14 verses were applied and followed, we don't have the books of the prophets. We don't have books like Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. There's no point. Ezekiel. We don't have books like that. We don't have books that detail coming out of captivity like Nehemiah. We don't have books like Amos, Habakkuk, or Joel. I'll stop there, but you get the picture. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, is the most pivotal chapter in my estimation, in the Old Testament because it sets the tone for everything else that was written. By not serving God, their ally, they would serve their enemies. I want you to think about Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. Hold that verse, those two verses in your mind. and Let's ponder this. When the modern world pictures the enemies that they face, hardly any would suggest they're not really that bad. It's just a difference of opinion. ISIS isn't really that bad. The Taliban weren't really that bad. On and on we could go. The the government of some nations isn't really that bad. No, hardly ever do we see those types of words spoken. You know, mankind wants nothing to do with their enemies except to get rid of them. So what if tomorrow morning you woke up and your phone had given you an alert, you turn on the news to see if it's true, and you find world peace finally possible, all enemies defeated. (laughs) The amount of rejoicing that would take place would be massive. What if the headline read differently, like this? America overtaken by blank. All hope seems lost. This is the picture that Deuteronomy gives to modern man. Look at verses 47 and 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, you're going to serve somebody. Therefore, you'll serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, thirst, nakedness, need of everything. He'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. You are going to realize the problems that you will face because you did not go the right way. 
another problem that they would face. They were going to go away into captivity. Such a statement would have stricken fear into each Israelite that could remember what the days in Egypt were like. Whether through stories of their parents, or even by implication, perhaps someone having the opportunity to say, I know what it was like, and they pass that down. Captivity today is just a thought for so many of us. For anyone that experienced it, the feelings are more intense. A Holocaust survivor. A family member who had been a slave. Those thoughts burn deep into their minds. And for the Israelites, it would have been no different because Egypt had been harsh to them. The Lord spared them from that oppression, Exodus 14. Now, they're told of another nation that is brutal. And in all honesty, when you begin in verse 49... The Bible says the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you won't understand. A nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. They're going to eat your food, the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land until you're destroyed. They'll eat your grain, your new wine, oil. They're not going to leave any of that behind until they've destroyed you, including the cattle, your offspring of your flocks, till you've been consumed. You drop down to verse 52 and 53, and it says, They'll besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls, in which you've trusted, come down throughout all your land. They'll besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons, and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to the son and her daughter. Her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege, and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Barbaric attitude toward their family. In verse 58 it says, If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. When you stop and consider Egypt versus Babylon, 
we have many debates in the sporting world. Who is the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? I'm not a huge fan of saying that there could really ever be a greatest of all time because that would indicate that you could pluck somebody into any era with the same rules, and that's not a very consistent way of voting. The GOAT is somebody who certainly makes an impact, but I think the GOAT should be the greatest of this era or of their era. Rules change. Back in the 70s when the Steelers were dominating, they weren't known for their passing prowess. Oh, but when the 49ers came onto the scene and had their dynasty, it was Jerry Rice and Joe Montana throwing the ball up and down the field. And now you see a resurgence in some cases of running backs in the modern-day NFL. At the time of me recording this, Tom Brady announced for the second time a year to the day that he's retiring. I think this one will stick. And many people label him the proverbial goat. I don't know that you can ever say somebody's the greatest of all time, but I certainly think he was the greatest of his era. And it could be that we won't see something like that ever again. But when you compare Egypt and Babylon, Egypt doesn't hold as much of a candle when you read what you read in Deuteronomy 28. How could it get to this point? Lord willing, next week, we'll pick up with the punishments that they would be experiencing in addition to their problems. You could kind of call their problems punishments. But we're going to notice that the Lord gives quite a bit of detail into how they will be punished. Three specific additional punishments that would be considered generic, and then a deeper dive into the punishments themselves. Until next time, let's not forget to please God now so our eternity can be far better. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.